So hey there, guys. Hey, welcome back to Accelerated Investor with your host, me, Josh Cantwell. Um, I'm excited to be with you today and talk about capital, capital stack, debt, LP equity, uh, joint venture partnerships. And today I'm interviewing uh, Jake Clopton. He is the founder and CEO of Clopton Capital. Uh, Jake is a serial entrepreneur, author, and economist uh, with a focus on real estate and finance. Um, he is actively involved in various aspects of commercial lending, insurance products, property management, and is a regular contributor to both print and broadcast media. He currently owns Clopton Capital that he founded in 2009, which focuses on small to medium middle-sized markets and asset classes with a focus on multifamily. And his company, Clapton Capital, has arranged billions of dollars of financing, debt financing for borrowers across the country. Um, Jake also has a focus on LP equity. So he's got relationships with family offices, uh, pension funds, and credit unions, and agency lenders, and various different types of capital that can not only fund your debt, but also come in to a limited partner role. So if you are actively doing apartment deals and let's say you're doing a big one and you need some more LP equity, uh, Jake is a great resource there. He also runs uh, Clopton Insurance Services, which is a national insurance agency that's focused on the commercial property and business insurance. He's also the author of Commercial Real Estate Investing, Understanding, Finding, and Funding Deals in Today's World. Uh, you're going to love this interview with Jake Clopton, CEO of Clopton Capital, because we're going to talk specifically about the markets, what's happening with today's market, is interest rates move and what's happening and what's stabilizing, what's keeping going up. Uh, we're also going to talk a little bit about Jake's entrepreneurial journey about starting Clopton Capital back in 2009 in the middle of the Great Recession. So you're going to really enjoy this interview with Jake Clopton on Accelerated Investor. Here we go. Welcome to the Accelerated Investor Podcast with Josh Cantwell. If you're looking to retire early with forever passive income, you're in the right place. This podcast is the go-to destination for real estate investors, both active and passive, and multifamily apartment investors, both new, intermediate, and advanced. Now, sit back, listen, learn, and accelerate your business, your life, and your investing with the Accelerated Investor Podcast. So, hey, Jake, listen, welcome to Accelerated Investor, man. Happy to have you on the show. Great. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Absolutely, Jake. So let's talk about, listen, Clapton Capital is involved in all different kinds of real estate, but especially multifamily. And you're involved all the way up and down the capital stack as not only a debt lender, debt provider, LP equity, sponsor of deals. Uh, so you've been all the way up and down these types of deals for a long time, dating all the way back to 2009. So I'm just curious to always hear from a new guest kind of what they're up to today, like what they're up to this summer as this gets released. What are you most excited about projects that you're working on? And then secondly, let's talk a little bit about the state of the market because you get to see it from a couple different angles, specifically as a debt provider and then also LP equity, uh, kind of where you see the market is heading because we're into that part of the phase of the cycle where it feels like as the cost of money goes up, things are going to slow down. So personally, let's start, first of all, personal 
What are you up to right now that you're excited about and passionate for? Um, no, yeah, appreciate it. I mean, this the stuff that I personally am doing is you know through our business along the lines of the stuff that you know we're always pushing, right? I mean, the, the market's been uh, the market's been great. There's been lots of activity and transaction volumes have been you know very good. You know, so we we're involved in you know like you said up and down the cap stack where we arrange first mortgages through banks, credits, or debt funds. We do a lot of, you know, debt fund stuff for, you know, value add or maybe construction and stuff like that. Um, but then we're also involved in the higher cap tech space. And we market to probably about like 75 different LP equity investors um, that target, you know, multifamily value adds or constructions. So I'm really trying to, you know, one of our big pushes for the summer is to find more, equity type of deals that we can bring out to market and place our investors. I've been looking for stuff that, you know, I've seen a ton of stuff in like the Sun Belt down in Texas, stuff like that, but love to see more stuff kind of, you know, in like Colorado or, you know, different areas kind of shake things up a little bit. So, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'd say, you know, if I had a goal for the summer, I'd, I'd like to get, you know, more equity volume and see, you know, more deals that make sense on that front. Got it. So I know you're you're based out of Chicago. Chicago landed a lot of activity there. You obviously lend all over the country. You've invested all over the country. The Sun Belt, right? There's there's markets that are kind of made and broken by the Federal Reserve, right? Based on monetary policy, I call them boom bust markets. And the Sun Belt for sure is one of those markets. Uh, obviously, the East Coast, the West Coast, Florida, Arizona, Vegas—they've been kind of boom and bust. Type of markets for the last 20 years or so. We invest primarily in the Cleveland, Midwest, Columbus, Cincinnati markets. What other markets are you said you're said you're trying to diversify? Some of our audience is in Memphis. Guys are in uh, Kansas City. They're in Charlotte. What kind of other markets are you looking at? And what type of markets interest you? So in my business, I tend to follow macro trends and kind of what's going on. And and yeah, like some of the Sunbelt states, you know, we're a little bit like, like a Miami, for instance, it was like a little bit more boom and bust. But I think because of like some of the demographic changes that have gone on, like there's different different types of capital there. It's got a little bit more staying power. Mm-hmm. You know, like Miami, for instance, was like all foreign money that would roll in and then then it would shut off and roll out, right? Right. Um but you know, a, a lot of the stuff down in those areas that I've seen, right? So post-pandemic, like huge demographic growth. You know, when I say I want to, I, I'm trying to see stuff uh, kind of outside of there is because a lot of the the cost basis I'm seeing in deals down there is very high, right? It's, I mean, it's exceptionally high. I mean, deals are selling at three caps and stuff like that. So you know, it it, it gets. <laughs> yes, there there's a the light at the end of the tunnel when you're looking at a value add deal, and so you know you can lever up to kind of get those, you know, 20 IRRs. But, you know, I think there's probably other markets that you get better in going cash on cash than some of the super high competitive, you know, Sunbelt markets that everybody has their eye on. And it's not a specific market, but I'm, you know, kind of looking or trying to find areas that aren't so obvious, you know, as if somebody says like, hey, where's the where's the markets that are on fire? You just everybody's names off off Florida, Texas. Right. Yeah, uh, sure. Uh, that that that's kind of my thesis at the moment. So. Got it. Yeah, same. So, w- with that in mind, t- because you see so many different deals up and down the capital stack, where do you see rates going? This talk of recession. Obviously, recessions typically happen because the cost of money gets more expensive, or money becomes less available. And again, the Federal Reserve and the capital markets get kind of turned up and turned off which create kind of these sometimes boom bust periods. 
I guess the question in a lot of people's minds is, you know, is the capital markets going to slow down? Is there going to be less liquidity? Are we at the top of a market? And I think, again, what people have to remember, all of our audience, you guys need to remember is, is that real estate is still very local. And Jake mentioned demographics. So the demographics in Columbus, Ohio are going to be much different than the demographics in Mobile, Alabama. So you can't make a blanket statement. But as cost of money goes up, liquidity becomes, uh, you know, we're not going to have a liquidity crisis like we did in 08, 09, but liquidity maybe not quite as available. Cost of money goes up. How do you see things shaking out? You know, you've been in this business since 09. So obviously you saw the crash of 08, 09, 10 and how that recovered. So I'm right. serious, curious to hear your opinion there. Um, right. And in 08, 09, I was uh, trading interbank hedging product futures. So I had a, a real front row seat to all that was going on. <laughs> right. So, okay. The, the Fed's trying to slow down the economy to kind of bring that in inflation, right? And and they're they're actively, you know, trying to rein in the economy and kind of job growth because you have that huge dislocation of supply and demand in the labor market. And that that's that's exactly what they're trying to like squeeze in, right? Recessions happen, right, for for various reasons. Um, but if you kind of look back to, and I've seen people on LinkedIn saying there's gonna be a housing crisis and there's gonna be another real estate thing and all this. And, and, I kid I, my opinion, I'm not saying anybody else is wrong, but my opinion is that's not going to happen um, for, for a couple of different reasons. Right. So back in 08, the, you know, it was a combination of, you know, it was a financial crisis because bank balance sheets had been sucked dry. And then also there was asset deflation because, you know, obviously there was no buyers in the residential markets and all this stuff. Bank balance sheets are extremely healthy. Um, I mean, as far when I go out there and I talk to lenders, in fact, they're saying, hey, we're hungry for deals. We need deals that work. Right. Um, I, I think it's it's not as much a can we find lenders to lend? It's can we find the appropriate economics of the deals to make them work right now? Like the market maybe needs to adjust. And a lot of times that always kind of comes down to like the deal needs more equity versus that. You know, right, right. And, and, you know, like somebody will say like, oh, well, the Fed's trying to take liquidity out of the system. Yes, they are. But there, there's another aspect of the banking system that a lot of people don't see. And you can go onto like the St. Louis Fed and look it up. Look at the overnight repo markets where banks park money that they're not using. There's $2 trillion of cash that gets parked in the overnight repo markets every single night to earn absolutely nothing that yeah. they're waiting to deploy. So there's still $2 trillion in the banking system that needs to get out, lent out and all this stuff. So, you know, as far as like, are we going to have a recession? Is there going to be asset deflation and like a crash? I, I really, really don't think so. There's just an enormous amount of liquidity out there sure. to make that argument like, you know, otherwise. Interest rates. So I used to trade interest rates for a living. So I mean, hopefully I still remember some of that. What I think is going to happen, and I wrote a Benzinga article about this a couple of weeks ago, is that my feeling is that we're going to end up with an extremely flat yield curve because, you know, the Fed's raising short-term rates and anybody who's doing a construction deal or doing a debt fund deal, right? That's tied to SOFR or, you know, Fed funds or prime. Um, they're definitely feeling that, you know, th those lifts, right? Because those are all tied to short-term rates. Long-term rates are kind of a different animal. And, you know, like the 10-year treasury, which a lot of these long-term um, mortgage rates are based off of the swap, it, you know, that's more tied to like inflation and economic growth than kind of what else is going on in the rest of the world. And you could kind of notice, you know, that the 10 year treasury rates haven't really popped up like everybody. I mean, they have gone up, but not to a degree where people are thinking they should have. 
Um, and my feeling is as short-term rates rise, the long-term rates are going to kind of either hold steady or come down in a little bit. And I have this target of like two and a half percent on 10 year in my mind, um, because the Fed's trying to pull back on growth and the 10 year rates tied to growth, right? Right. Um, what's happening right now in that like people have seen rates explode kind of all over the place. It's not the the index rates, it's the credit spreads that are the other side of the equation that have come out an enormous amount. And I, I think a lot of that has to do with one, you know, there's pain in the high of that market and corporate bonds, but also, you know, like there's a lot of uncertainty. And I think once you get more certainty about how far the Fed's actually going to move, you, you know, buyers can come in and price those spreads a lot tighter and ultimately rates will come in more. And then things like the CMBS market will start working better and, you know, RMBS will come in and you'll get better residential mortgage rates, stuff like that. So yeah. my, my feeling going forward here in kind of the short to medium term is short term debt, you know, gets more expensive. Did you get to the latter part of the year? Those rate caps will come in a lot more. And then, you know, long term rates, I think, will probably stay steady or even come in as credit spreads tighten, Got it. you know, probably into the second part of next year. It's an interesting thing, too, I think. Kind of some shock to the system when 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 Powell comes in from the Federal Reserve and says we're going to raise rates seven times when you haven't seen interest rates rise for over ten really ten years right. and all of a sudden the markets have this shock of oh my god it's going to be Armageddon and what you saw was the ten year Treasury yield go from like one point six back in October jumped up to two nine three and now it's hovered there. For about forty-five days, and to yeah, me, it's in this trend, this channel, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's been it's been right in that three percent to nine. They got a little like three point oh five yesterday, and so the market now knows what the Federal Reserve is thinking, and the market has made this quick adjustment. Rates short term went up, and even the long term rates jumped up to five, and then they settled back down to like four and a half. Because and now the market knows what the Federal Reserve is thinking, and to me that kind of all this um, uncertainty went from October really until about April of this year, that six-month window. And then it's kind of leveled off right now. Everybody knows that these future rate increases are coming. But frankly, short-term debt, like you work a lot in the middle markets, the short-term debt on a bridge loan probably should be at 6 to 8%. When they were dropping down to 45 or 5 it was like, what is going on? This is way too cheap of money here. Yeah, when you have transitional non-recourse debt that's pricing at like, like what's a real coupon? Like three? Right. You know what I mean? Like, the, the, it, it, you're right. I mean, it seems like a risk dislocation, right? Right. And I mean, think about it too. Like, and I mean, this is the way that, you know, I look at real debt pricing. What's your real cost of capital? If inflation is 8%, you're, you're paying, like, if your rate's three, you're paying negative 5% on the money. I'll take that so, all day. There's still a lot of accommodation in the system. No doubt. Much higher rates than we have today. Are you ready to automate and explode your real estate investing? We're searching for extremely motivated individuals who are sick and tired of wasting time and want to finally see real results from their real estate investing business. We're searching for investors looking to get to the next level and become a bigger, better version of themselves while being a more successful real estate investing entrepreneur. Apply for mentoring and coaching at joshcantwellcoaching.com forward slash podcast. That's joshcantwellcoaching.com forward slash podcast. 
So Jake, if some of our audience wanted to engage with you and all the services that you provide from an owner-operator perspective, from an LP perspective, from debt perspective, you're obviously looking for more transaction volume. Like, Help me, us understand what's the ideal type of deal for you, for your niche. And if some of our audience wanted to reach out to you, what's the type of deal that you're looking for, whether it's to arrange debt, whether it's to arrange LP equity, whether it's to actually sponsor a deal or be an owner, what's the sweet spot for you and your company? Um, yeah, I mean, we're in this model middle market space, right? So on the debt side, we'll do perm loans, bridge and construction, anywhere from like a million bucks and up. I tend to kind of fly under that institutional level, right? So I I don't even know what that is anymore because some of my middle market guys are getting pretty big, man. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. And and then, you know, so anything that's in that space is, you know, kind of in our wheelhouse. On the equity side, um, what we do is we arrange joint venture partners, right? And I, I stay very clear and careful of what looks like a real estate security. And that's something that I think a lot of sponsors should look into what's an actual security and make sure they're not selling those by accident. So, you know, I mean, our, our LPs are like, you know, funds and maybe some family offices, stuff like that. And, and like the, the, the sponsors that work really well for us is a guy that manages his own deals, finds off market stuff. You know, he's going to look for like a 90, 10 kind of LPGP somewhere in there, right? Kind of contribution split um, mm-hmm. in like a three to five year horizon, right? Because the capital that we use for our LP deals likes to recycle. And if you look at that IRR kind of on a curve, right when it starts to kink, you know, downward or flatten out that, you know, we want to exit and recycle again. Sure. God, love it. Okay, great. So guys, guys, check out cloptoncapital.com to connect with Jake if you have a deal that fits the criteria that he just mentioned. Jake, I'm interested to hear more about with all of our guests about their entrepreneurial journey. That was interesting when I first knew that you were coming on the show and we looked at your websites and did some research that you actually started and founded Clapton Capital in 09, right in the middle of the crap show that was the economy back then. And so I'm interested to hear more about your entrepreneurial journey. Like, How did you form up Clapton Capital? How has the growth been? What were some of the major wins that you had along the way? And then we'll talk about some of the challenges and the choke points too. So tell us about the start. How did it get going? How did you build the company to be so successful? Um, right. So as I mentioned this back in, uh, before I started this company, I, I traded uh, three month LIBOR and like Fed funds, futures and treasury, stuff like that. And yeah, in, in 08, 09, I mean, obviously what happened was rates went to absolute zero again. Right. And um, actually that whole market, like all the volume dried up. Um, and it was pretty much gone. So I, I think I was in the same position as a lot of people as I'm saying, well, I got to figure out something else to do. And, you know, I kind of looked at what was going on in the economy. I said, all right, well, where's the real need? Right. And it was a financial crisis and lenders weren't lending. Um, so I said, well, OK, I, I didn't really know like anything about this type of business yet. But I said, I'm going to I'm going to go out there and I'm going to try to make a transaction, you know, some sort of transaction fee, finding people money. Because, you know, okay. that was just the idea, right? Because everybody needed money, nobody could find it. But really, honestly, I, all I started doing was cold calling banks and private lenders. And uh, I, I'm a big, you know, advocate for cold calling um, and having it as like a skill. Even though I have people that do it for me today, I still get on there and try to just to like keep it fresh. But that, that's how I started the business, candidly. I mean, I was just making a couple hundred phone calls a day, calling around to every bank or private lender or, or whatever that I could to find money. 
Um, and then wow. I would just put it out there that we had found people that were lending and we could do X, Y, Z and people would just come to us, you know, because um, everybody was so, so hungry to find actual like liquidity. So really the idea was to be able- the deals were 30 to 50% off. Of yeah. Yeah. So now you're like, oh my God, it's 09, it's 2010. The stock market usually recovers first and then the economy recovers second. People start to feel better that we're past the crisis. But then you're like, oh God, there's all these deals on sale, but who's going to freaking lend me the money? So right. you found that niche, right? Of, hey, now there's deals to be had. A lot of bank-owned stuff, a lot of repo stuff, a lot of stuff in receivership, but no lenders. So you're like, okay, now there's an opportunity. Who's going to lend and who's going to put the money on the street? And you're going to start to connect the dots. That's a great idea. I mean, basically just serving the market. I love it. it yeah, exactly. I mean, that was that's where the vacuum is, right? There was no supply. I mean, we're, we're going to be a liquidity provider, right? And so just just over time, like, you know, as as, as we were doing that, I mean, just kind of it started really growing into a real business. Um, and, and, you know, and that was that was a challenge for me. Right. So when you before what I was doing before I traded, you just it's just you and a screen. Right. It's not really it's not. an I mean, it is a business, but it's you're not dealing with other people. So, you know, making it into an actual business that had employees and, and had other people, um, you know, that was the challenge. You know, I mean, I, I knew how to find clients. I knew how to find lenders and capital. Um, it, it was kind of growing the business itself. And, you know, I, I at first took a more like traditional kind of model where like a lot of brokerage firms have a lot of sales guys, right? And then they deal with the clients. And then, you know, I would deal with all the capital market stuff. But what I didn't like about it was the bifurcation of communication and understanding, because I didn't know what the clients actually wanted because I had to hear about it from one, you know, one degree of separation or two or whatever it was. They didn't know what the cap, what the lenders wanted because of the same thing, but in reverse. Um, so around like 2014-ish time, I uh, I just I actually just completely flipped the whole thing around, and you know it, it cost me a lot of money because the you know our volume dropped off because I had to redo the entire business. But instead of having a bunch of sales guys and brokers that don't know the capital markets, I built out a huge support staff for myself. Mm -hmm. And so now I have all this time on my hands to do nothing but just talk to people that are looking for deals, but I also talking directly to the debt and equity providers also so that, you know, like a, a lot of other, a lot of other firms, you know, you go to them and they, they send something out to 5,000 people and see who comes back. I don't need to do that. I know exactly who is right for this deal right off the bat. And it's maybe five, six guys. And, you know, we, our efficiency is just so much better and the execution is better because of that. And Jake, what, what do you think was the key to you redoing the business in 2014? Like from an entrepreneur perspective, what did you see? You obviously that, that one degree of separation of communication, miscommunication you saw was a problem and then rebuilding it. But what was going through your mind when you're thinking, okay, I have a successful business. We're making transaction volume. We've got the sales reps on this side. We've got the capital market guys on this side. And I'm going to blow it all up and start over, right? Um, That's well, what I'm interested from an entrepreneur because, because there was chinks in the armor as it was, right? I mean, there, there was obvious inefficiencies. And I was spending a lot of my time doing things that didn't directly generate revenue. You know what I mean? And I think this is, as an entrepreneur, this is everybody's pet peeve. I'm like, if I could only spend more time doing the things that are actually making me money versus doing all these other you know, housekeeping things, 
you know, like managing employees or this or that, or, you know, training people. And, and the thing is when you, when you have people underneath you, like, and you're, you're the head of the company, you inherently end up being all roles at a, yeah. at a certain point. Right. And so th- that, that's really what I wanted to do is like, I, I, I need to find a way for me to spend more time understanding and doing the things that are actually generating revenue versus all this other stuff, you know, and, and that that's that's what the the catalyst was. Huh. Yeah, I think that check in is key, right? Because when I was talking with Kevin O'Leary, Kevin talked about look, it takes a certain amount of just muscle to take a business from zero dollars to a million, and then it's really still just the entrepreneur working their face off to get to five million or even ten million. But when you're at five or ten, and you've got employees, like that's where the entrepreneur needs to do what you did and take a step back and say, where am I at? Where are all the inefficiencies? And how do I scale to the next level? How do I bring in other people to either scale the business for me or step out of the business so that they can run it and empower them? And Kevin talked a lot about giving people 90-day goals and getting the hell out of the way, right? So that's one way to do it. Another way to do it, like you said, is take all the inefficiencies in a business and say, I'm just going to stop doing all these, just cut, cut bait, get rid of them and, and do it differently. And that's going to allow me to grow the business where I'm just closer to the money. Like you became a lot closer to the money, a lot closer to the debt, a lot closer to the borrower and be able to just say, I know exactly who needs this product or I need the borrower that needs to find this type of loan. Um, so on a day-to-day basis, Jake, I imagine you have inbound deal flow from borrowers. And you're maintaining these relationships with this whole capital stack over here, right? Limited partners, debt providers, construction loans, all this type of uh, bridge financing. And you're just kind of staying on top of that. And then you're just going to search for the borrower, the operator that needs it. And you're like, yep, I know exactly what you need. It's right over here. I've got the relationship. I could package up the deal and provide it. Is that about right? Exactly. I mean, it's to the level where... You know, I just know, like, for instance, like, I don't have some spreadsheet with like, oh, this company's looking for this to lend out. You know, we've just, I've had conversations with them in the past 48 hours. We know what they need. You know, I don't try to run too many races. I like to stick to, you know, our areas that work really well for us. And then when, you know, people come in and they, you know, they're they're looking for X, I I know exactly where it goes already. I love it. I love it. Jake, so... What have you learned? Like what based on this journey of of being an active operator, doing joint ventures on the LP side, doing the debt side, having these close relationships with the cash, the capital, what kind of advice would you pass along to your younger former self? Or what kind of advice would you give our audience about what you did right and what you do differently? Like what entrepreneurial lessons have you learned that you think our audience could take back from from your journey? There's probably several, but I've been pushing this one lately, and that's having really good time management skills because you can be shocked how much one person can do um, in in a day, right? If you are properly able to organize and kind of eliminate all the inefficiencies and things that you actually don't need to do, right? I mean, everybody knows like, you know, one person that's out there that seems to have their entire day taken up by like a a haircut appointment. And then I don't know, going to lunch. you know what I mean? But like, you know, being able to appropriately, you know, allocate your own personal time and resources into the things that are actually going to make you money. And then knowing what to forget about and what not to work on 
I think is really, really important. And, and I guess it comes down to what not to work on, right? And being able to actively identify those things and push them to the side. Yeah, no doubt. I think it was the book, um, Eat That Frog by Brian Tracy he said something along the lines of, look, we as entrepreneurs, we all have this laundry list of stuff we want to do. The best entrepreneurs realize there's only a certain amount that's a revenue producing activity and they're just totally fine. The really successful ones totally fine with taking maybe the other 80% and just either never even doing it or just delegating it or just saying, look, it's it's important, but I'm just not going to do it because this other 20% of the real entrepreneur to-do list that's going to move the needle, that's going to make money that's what I'm really going to focus on. And what so many people do, and Brian points this out in his book, and this is, you know, this Eat That Frog came out when, at least 10 years ago. He talks about, look, the, the, the non-successful salespeople or the non-successful entrepreneurs are the ones that are kind of start with the easy stuff that doesn't move the needle because it, the activity feels like success. It sounds like, Jake, you said, I don't really want to feel like I'm busy. I want to, I want to be successful. And I, you were successfully able to separate those two and then only focus on the really important stuff. Was there an exercise, Jake, that you did? Or was there some habit that you got into that allowed you to successfully separate the muck from the really important stuff? Or was it just focus and self-discipline? Um, it's just, you know, it just happens over time, right? And, and you're right. Some of the days, the, the, the concept you mentioned exactly what I'm talking about, some of the days where I feel the busiest, I also feel like I got not, I didn't make any progress, right? I'm like, great. I, I answered a bunch of emails that went absolutely nowhere. Right. Um, but well, then, you know, successful day. Yeah. But then other people have like, you know, days where it's like, hey, you, you kind of sat there for a while and you had answered a couple of emails, but you actually made a lot of great progress and stuff. And, and, and yes, so at, definitely identifying things that actually, you know, have impact and make a difference and not hoarding small medial tasks and just letting them go. Definitely a, a skill that I think, you know, not a lot of people realize they don't have, but it's very important. So. Love it. Yeah. That key self-discipline focus and just knowing what's the really important top 20% of the workload is is so critical to being a successful entrepreneur. Right. Um, Jake, listen, I had a blast getting to know you today on Accelerated Investor. Thank you so much for jumping on the show. Why don't you tell our audience a little bit more about if they have a deal, whether it's LP equity, JV, whether it's debt, where can they reach out to you to just you know network with you and uh, possibly do some deals together? Yeah, um, I'm exceptionally easy to find. Hit me up on LinkedIn. Um, you can call me directly. You know, My phone number and my email are right on there or it's through our website. Um, I'm always around. Got it. ClaptonCapital.com. Look up Jake and Clapton Capital on LinkedIn, guys. Definitely reach out, make a connection with Jake and make some deals happen. Jake, thanks so much for joining me today on Accelerated Investor. Absolutely. Thank you. Well, hey, there you have it. What a great resource Jake is for not only debt, but LP equity, joint venture partnerships, and insurance services. So make sure you reach out to Jake at CloptonCapital.com. Also check him out on LinkedIn. He's very active on LinkedIn. And I really enjoy some of the resources that he can provide. Matter of fact, Jake and I, uh, after we recorded this interview, Jake's actually going to be contributing and doing a special call with my mastermind and coaching group, which is called Forever Passive Income. And so I like to bring on these types of guests to specifically do a deep dive with my my high-level group, my Forever Passive Income group. If you're interested in learning more about that, about coaching, mastermind, and partnering, and getting really kind of insider access to some of these kind of resources, tools, strategies from guys like Jake who do deep dives with my group, 
Uh, check that out at joshcantwellcoaching.com. There, you'll find an application. You can apply to be a part of the group. The, the membership is not cheap, but it is worth it. I can promise you that. My guys are doing big deals. I've got a member in my group that's taking down a $17.5 million deal in Memphis with a broker that I personally introduced him to. So that one member joining at joshcantwellcoaching.com as he takes down this $17 million deal in Memphis is going to do a life-changing transaction because he's part of my group. So check it out at joshcantwellcoaching.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, please make sure you leave us a rating, review, Uh, all over social media, whether it's Spotify, whether it's YouTube, whether it's iTunes, on our website, through Google. We appreciate your ratings and reviews on all those platforms. It would mean so much to me. I'd be so grateful if you would share that with your other people, with your other friends, family, all over social media. So thanks so much for being here again with me on Accelerated Investor. We'll talk to you next time. Take care. You were just listening to the Accelerated Investor Podcast with Josh Cantwell. If you enjoyed this episode and learned something new, help us build the AI community by leaving a review and five-star rating on our iTunes podcast channel. Also, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss another episode. To see passive investing opportunities, visit freelandventures.com slash passive. To start your journey toward the lifestyle you've always dreamed of with multifamily apartments, apply for one-on-one coaching with Josh at www.joshcantwellcoaching.com.